Yeshiva University is one of the most important and venerable Jewish institutions in America and the world. It was founded over a century ago in 1886 with a mission to marry the Torah tradition with secular knowledge. Our guest today, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, is the new president of Yeshiva University. He has a long history with YU. He graduated from four schools at the university, earning a BA in medieval philosophy, rabbinic ordination, and graduate studies that included two years at Yeshiva Achtzion in Israel. After making Aliyah to Israel in 2008, Dr. Berman completed his higher education with a PhD in Jewish thought at Hebrew University. As part of his professional background, in New York City, he was the rabbi of the Jewish Center, and in Israel, he was instructor of Jewish thought at Midrashet Moriah, head of the Center of Jewish Heritage in Jerusalem, and lecturer of rabbinic literature at Herzog College. Welcome, Rabbi Dr. Berman. Thank you so much, David. It is a pleasure and joy to be sitting with you. Well, you know, when you interview scholars, every question could lead to a 30-minute answer. So our, our challenge today is to cover as much ground in a short period of time. And the first question that comes to my mind is, you're, you seem to be above all a scholar, a man of ideas. And how does a scholar take on this formidable mission of running such a large institution? Is that a daunting challenge? Uh, thank you, uh, David. Uh, first of all, thank you for the invitation to speak here and to have this delightful conversation with you. I, I would say more as a conversation between friends, even friends we've just met, <laughs> rather than thinking about scholars. Um, but I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the compliment. Uh, I would say it on, uh, I, would, I would direct this really in, on two levels. Um, first of all, uh, my experience has been running organizations as well, uh, you know, both in America and in Israel, and, um, and organizations in the Jewish community. So by definition, they're complicated, complex, uh, you know, engines, as we have such a wonderful, uh, uh, complex people. Um, so I have uh, a lot of experience on that, uh, on that end. But to your point of scholarship, you know, besides the, the, uh, the importance of the university president and Yeshiva University president uh, being fully aware and uh, deeply rooted in our texts and, and our traditions, I would say that the project of higher education today and the project of a yeshiva today, which is trying to train and educate and raise the next generation of Jewish leaders, is first a thought project before it's a financial, uh, you know, administrative Management. one. Um, first, we need to position ourselves correctly uh, based on where the world is and where the world is going. And it's then that our ideas will, will have the resonance uh, that, will, that will inspire, uh, you know, greater expanse of partners and friends. You know, one of my favorite parts of the Jewish tradition is that we honor and we value struggle. Uh, I struggle in my position. It's a wonderful, joyful struggle of incorporating all the voices of the L.A. Jewish community. What struggle are you anticipating are you living um, that you are ready to embrace? Sure. Well, I see this uh, maybe less as a struggle than uh, realizing enormous potential. 
Uh, Yeshiva University is the greatest Jewish intellectual educational resource, certainly in the diaspora, arguably throughout the world, meaning we have eight graduate schools, four undergraduate schools, two high schools, library, museum, you know, over 7,000 students. Um, our undergraduate schools are filled with Jews of all kinds and from all backgrounds in all countries. You know, Jews from 22 different countries who come to Yeshiva University together. Our graduate schools are Jewish and non-Jewish, right? And they're all part of this great project, which we can talk about, but mm -hmm. this great project of Yeshiva University. Um, and it's, uh, it's enormous. And I was the opportunities thinking. are enormous. So to realize the opportunities, uh, you know, I would say is, is, is not just a, a gr the greatest challenge, uh, but is our ambition. And it's exciting. I Meaning, I'm here because it's exciting to do it. I, I was thinking about your, your job this morning when I was preparing uh, for this interview. And I thought, oh, my God, he's got so many constituencies. He's got the students. He's got the teachers. He's got the community at large. He's got the trustees. He's got the alumni. And how do you prioritize sure. with all these con constituencies? Well, the first level is knowing your values and knowing what you're about. Hmm. And our values and our message uh, resonates throughout our institution and into the broader public and beyond. And it includes, it's inclusive of all of these constituencies. I'd even go even further. Yeshiva University is the epicenter of a global movement. Right? The people that identify or want to be a part of or support our values right, are the people that are part of our project. So we speak clearly you know, with, with what we stand for. And by doing so, you know, we speak in, in, in residences that, uh, that connect uh, to many different people of many different kinds, um, certainly different kinds throughout the Jewish world, but again, even in the non-Jewish world. Uh, you know, people who, who, who are interested in hearing how tradition, traditional values, how our 3,000-year-old tradition of wisdom applies to our contemporary society. You know, I want to put you on the spot sure. now because uh, we're all consumed with the horrible tragedy that happened in Florida. And I've been wrestling with what to put on the cover of the Jewish Journal next week. And I spoke to a rabbi last night, and we decided that the cover is going to be about prayer. Because if you see a lot of the media coverage in the past few days, there seems to be a denigration of prayer. Whenever, when you hear, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with the victims, uh, it's a common reaction now to say that, well, that feels like that's useless stuff. Prayers have nothing to do with the gun control reform that we need. It has nothing to do with protecting high schools and so forth, and yet prayer is essential to the modern orthodox tradition that you uphold. It's an essential value of the tradition that's inherent to Yeshiva University. So I'm curious how you see in these dismal times, how do we, how do we redeem prayer with a population that feels that prayer right now is useless? Well, I would uh, I'd answer in a double uh, double level. Uh, certainly, in thinking about the enormous tragedy in uh, South Florida, I actually was in South Florida last week. I was there in uh, Boca Raton and Palm Beach, just a few miles uh, from Parkland uh, at the time. Um, to 
to speak first directly to your point about prayer, it's specifically in times like these that the importance of connecting and having a relationship with a comforting God who loves us and cares about us. Even when we don't understand how events could unfold, even when, when innocents are taken. It's specifically at these times to know that there's a, a comforting presence, not that solves our problems for us, but enables us to have the comfort of knowing that we're not alone. You know, it says in, uh, in the Pasuk, it says in the verse, Gam ki lo imadi, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. That does not mean that evil won't happen. That does not mean that bad things won't happen. It just means that that whole anxiety of being alone, it means that, that the sense of, of, of having to go through life alone is, is fundamentally changed. Ki imadi, because God is walking He's walking with you, and he cares about you, and he loves you. Um, you know, it's that sense of God in our lives, which is redemptive and, um, and transformative. Do you see Yeshiva University playing a role as a, as a voice for faith, as a voice for God that can help our nation heal? I certainly see that. And uh, I'd say that even even further, meaning Yeshiva University as a, um, you know, representing the nexus uh, between heritage and pioneering uh, brings the, the words of our tradition um, in a sophisticated, thoughtful, positive way into the world. And there's no question that the top on our agenda, you know, we have a phrase Torah Umada, that we combined Torah studies and secular studies. One of our rabbis said to me, we should add another phrase, Torah b'kidush Hashem, that we sanctify God's name in the world. That it says in the pasuk, in the verse, you should love the Lord your God. It's not just that you should love him, but the rabbis teach us that that he should become more beloved through your actions that part of our job is to make God and his messages more beloved in the world around us. And again, I say this, it's not just about the Jews. And I like what you said about our nation. You know, America is divided. America is in a place where the civic discourse is fractured. And what you hear is extremist language. And what we stand for you know, is that middle ground where tradition is not thought of an extreme, an extremist views, nor is it rejected, but is brought into the world with kindness and with love. And what I found is that we have partners. We have partners today in, uh, in a much more, uh, a greater depth and breadth than perhaps ever before in Jewish history. You know, Jewish history is sort of a, uh, 
uh, can be told over in the, uh, you know, quick uh, uh, joke almost. You know, they tried to kill us. We were saved. Let's eat. Right? You know, that's Jewish history. But that's the past Jewish history. You know, we're so often, Jews are often focused on uh, the narratives of this past. And I'm not saying that we still don't have what to be concerned about in the world. We do, and we need to be vigilant uh, to protect ourselves and, you know, anti-Semitism, and we need to be careful. But it's also important not to be careful to be stuck in past narratives and not realize what's going on in the world around us. So we have great friends in the world around us as well. You know, I um, uh, take, for example, the announcement of, uh, of Jerusalem, when America announced that Jerusalem was the, they recognized Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. Uh, people could argue politically, you know, is, is it the right thing? Was it the right time? Is it the right idea? I'm not getting into the politics. But on the surface, it would seem that the world, you know, was, was attacking, you know, that announcement. I, I was there, it was, I guess, a couple months ago, December. I was in Salt Lake City at the time. I was meeting with the Mormon uh, leadership. I went to meet with the president of Brigham Young University because I was looking for an analog to Yeshiva University, which is a university that's the epicenter of their movement. And I wanted to talk to the president to understand his challenges, his opportunities to learn from how they were working. When I was coming, they asked if I'd meet with the apostles. So I didn't know, I wasn't aware of uh, uh, the whole Mormon uh, hierarchy, but the apostles are their highest uh, uh, body, their highest governing body, and I had a fascinating conversation with the with the apostles who were who were uh, connecting, you know, with the with the with the Jewish faith or the Jewish leadership, you know, their theology is fundamentally different than ours, but the challenges and opportunities, the things that we share, um, are important for us to learn from one another, and I was surprised because it was actually felt on the same day that they announced, that the Trump administration <laughs> announced about Jerusalem. And I was surprised at the reaction, which is, uh, you know, un, uh, uh, <laughs> unambivalent applause mm. and excitement. And, and there we, we have many partners in the world who are excited about Israel, excited about Jewish, uh, uh, a Jewish renaissance. And, and the idea that our messages are bringing God more beloved in this world isn't just about the Jewish nation. It's about collecting and, and being a part of a much broader international coalition of people who are interested in doing so. I'm fascinated by the idea of what Judaism can bring to America. I read an analysis uh, a few years ago that for too many Jews, they have replaced Judaism with Americanism because they assume that it's equivalent. America is about freedom, Judaism is about freedom, so if I'm a true American, I don't really need Judaism because I already have America. But the truth is there are some distinct differences between Americanism and Judaism, whereas Americanism promotes the individual, Judaism is really about community, and whereas Americanism is very much based on rights, Judaism is based on obligation, and whereas Americanism is about the pursuit of happiness, Judaism is really about the pursuit of meaning. So I'm curious whether Yeshiva University can become an instrument to spread more Judaism. And I don't mean Orthodox Judaism. I mean Jewish values that America needs more of, more of a sense of obligation, 
more of a sense of community and more of a sense of the pursuit of meaning. So there's no question that that is our uh, mission and our ambition, um, which is to further Jewish values into the world. And, um, and I, again, it's not just America. I think it's our, our global society. And it's certainly not just Jews. It's also our non-Jews. When, I'm, when I speak to our students, you know, I tell our, our graduate non-Jewish students that they have an important mission in this world. You know, Judaism doesn't just speak to Jewish people. God doesn't just care about the Jews. He cares about everyone in the world. And the ones who are, are doing his service are not, in, in our Jewish thought, are not just the Jews, right? We have messages for everyone. I remember I was having a dialogue when I lived in Israel with um, a group of, of shechim, of sheiks. And uh, one of the things I studied in, uh, in Israel is um, uh, the non-Jew or the way the Jews view the ideal non-Jew. Much longer conversation. And he was very surprised to hear that from Judaism's perspective, a non-Jew can get into heaven, olam haba, and not be Jewish. Right? There's like seven basic Noahide laws which any civil person keeps. And that if you're a good person and you're doing good in the world, that counts for us. And he couldn't believe that because in the other monotheistic faiths, you have to adopt their religion. You have to convert or accept, you know, their, their articles of faith in order to, uh, to be saved. So he says to me, you know, he looked at me suspiciously and says, is this a minority opinion? I'm like, no, 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 this is, this is what everyone, this is the Maimonides, this is, this is really classic Judaism. And our message is certainly for, for the world. But I just want to comment on the uh, duality that you mentioned because I think that it's a little more nuanced between Americanism and Judaism. I think Judaism uh, embraces uh, the individual. It encourages uh, people um, to develop themselves. God has given each one of us skills, talents, and abilities and the way that we, uh, that each of us will serve God uh, will be different than the next. The, uh, the search for authenticity is a holy search. And the idea that, that you should focus on yourself to self-actualize is crucial uh, in our Jewish uh, spirit. When we say that each person is created in God's divine image, the Rambam understands that to be potential. Now you have to go actualize that and find who you are. And that, by the way, is when we study the Torah and we study the general studies, the professional studies, it's all part of the same holy work. Because when you develop and become a scientist or become a, a, a financial person or become a lawyer, these are all part of developing who you are. So I believe that part of Judaism is the self-actualization piece. But if it just remains there, okay, it's very limited. Our goal is to take that, to take everything, develop all that you are, and then give, and then be a part of what you call the greater collective, and then be a part of a broader society. Speaking of the collective, in my, in my profession, the collective we worry about so much is the Jewish community. You know, I was raised in Morocco. I didn't know that there was such a thing as Reformed Jews, Conservative Jews, Reconstructionist Jews, 
I didn't know that he existed. I just discovered that when I, we moved to America. And this is something we struggle with because there are so many different types of Jewish groups. And we're always talking about Jewish unity, Jewish identity, and how do we fight assimilation and intermarriage, and how do we keep Jews connected to their identity, and so on. These are sort of the meta issues that we deal with when you run a Jewish paper that communicates to the Jewish community. And I'm wondering if that fits in to the agenda of Yeshiva University in the sense of looking at not just that you're an Orthodox institution, but that you're a Jewish institution with the interest of the whole Jewish community at heart. And I'm just curious, because I'm sure I don't have to ask you that you're concerned about the state of uh, Jewish America today. You know? Sure. I so think, uh, what, how does that play into your mission, Rabbi? Uh, more than being concerned, uh, we're raising the leadership of, I think, the diaspora Jewish community. I mean, I think what we're, what we're trying to do is take our students. We have an army of students. There's no other higher educational institution, certainly in the diaspora, with this many Jewish students that are um, on the cusp, you know, of their leadership uh, abilities and to, to move forward. And I think that that in the future, we're the we certainly aspire for our students to become the leaders of uh, the Jewish uh, leadership of of tomorrow and to and to educate them that they must think in those terms beyond their narrow, uh, you know, it's not just about their own communities, but they have to think broader. There's no question about that. What I would say is it's interesting you reference your Sephardic uh, uh, background because I would say that's very, that's instructive. You know, the Sephardim had a different history than we, uh, when the Ashkenazim had. Um, and that the Ashkenazim history is a fractured uh, people you know, based on different theologies that uh, that developed and where we broke off into movements. The Sephardim never had movements. And because of that, there was a greater flexibility. Everyone was part of one kihila. And one's practices and and the level of one's observance, or that didn't define who you were. Everyone was part of the same, the same sense, the same kihila. And, 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 and if you're referencing God, as we spoke of it before, everyone loved God. <laughs> you know, that's not the question. You know, people do different things. And nobody saw that as, as means of, uh, of breaking off and being sad. I think, if anything, it's we who should be learning from, from you. And one of the things that I gained moving in Israel, because Israel has become a majority Sephardi country, is um, a greater appreciation uh, of that culture and how much that brings uh, brings to the table. One of the things I'm I'm thinking about deeply in Yeshiva University, we already have. I think the number might be twenty percent Svardim. We already have uh, a huge group of uh, of Svardim, and we have whole programs to, for them to retain their culture and heritage and training, Sephardi Rosh Yeshiva, Sephardi Beit Midrash. But I'm thinking we need to bring in more because we want to, I want our whole uh, community to be inspired uh, by the sense. And for me, it's the opposite. It's not thinking about the differences that we have on, on these issues. It's, it's thinking about Jewish values. Well, it's interesting because we're living in the time of the, grand reunion 
of Jews. For centuries, my ancestors never met an Ashkenazi Jew. Right. And we were all segregated in our own different parts of the world. And now here in America, we're having, you know, in my neighborhood, there's 30, 40 different kind of Jews that I would never have met had I stayed in Morocco. Yeah. So we have this opportunity of creating some kind of an interchange. One of the things that I grew up with as a Sephardic Jew is a certain respect for ritual, which means that even if a Sephardic Jew, and forgive me if I'm stereotyping, even if a Sephardic Jew may not follow a certain ritual, may not go pray, may not build a sukkah, may not follow a Shabbat, there's still, I was always taught the respect for ritual. And it strikes me that that's a critical component of building a stronger Jewish identity in America. I used to think that identity was based on I am more than anything, right? And over the years, I've come to the realization it's really hard to have an authentic Jewish identity if you don't do Jewish. You know, and in my case, the Friday night Shabbat meal is the ultimate doing Jewish. Uh, and Orthodox Judaism honors the ritual. You know, this is what distinguishes so uh, your movement so strongly. And when I, when I hear that, I'm thinking you, you could be on the cutting edge <laughs> of building, strengthening Jewish identity in America because ritual is what you do. Right. Um, there's no question that we come with, uh, with a lot of strengths and, and because we speak in many different languages and that, you know, we speak with the language of tradition uh, deeply, deeply rooted, uh, but we're also forward-focused. And we're in this culture, and we could speak the language of this culture as well. And our, uh, our graduates and people in our community have managed to uh, balance and successfully, you know, bring their tradition and bring their roots uh, into the world. And you mentioned Shabbat. Shabbat is a great example where I was just reading an article by Sylvia Barrick-Fishman who spoke about how you know, this community, our community has been able to successfully balance three things that nobody, you know, people are struggling to, uh, with which to balance, um, which is, you know, the, the family piece, the professional piece, and the community piece, you know, and, and having God and, and, and ritual and Shabbat in order to take a break. All these are pieces that enable us to think of life holistically you know, in each parts of our lives as holy and valuable um, so that it's precious, that we can give time to each parts of our lives. Just one other thing I want to mention, because you mentioned the words grand reunion. Whenever we would talk about a grand reunion, it's imperative to think about Israel. I mean, if there's a grand reunion that's taking place, it's happening in the state of Israel. All of the Jews from all around the world today are coming to Israel. Uh, it's I, when I was working in my office in Israel. So it was me who was uh, an American. I had a Moroccan executive director. Uh, the secretary was from uh, was Persian. Uh, the the program director I hired was from Tripoli. Uh, it's like the kibbutz goliot, you know, the ingathering of the exiles. Okay, it's taking place, uh, taking place in Israel, and I think that it's crucial for us for the diaspora Jewish community to link up to what's going on in Israel. 
Um, Israel is one of the greatest, most exciting Jewish projects of our generation. Forget I just said of our generation. In the history of the Jewish people. And we should uh, be deeply connected in that conversation and learning not just from them, but with them, from each other. Uh, because it is dynamic, it is exciting, uh, what they're building, and I think we have much that we can learn from one another. I'm glad you brought up Israel. Uh, about a year ago, Michael Eisenberg wrote in a tablet, American orthodoxy is suffering from a lack of ideas and ideals that are a direct result of a lack of leadership. And the question is, what happened to those leaders? And he says, I think the answer is inherent in the appointment of Rabbi Dr. Berman. Like Rabbi Berman, they, the future leaders, have moved to Israel. Do you see that as a side effect of the great success of Israel? Is they have a, taken future American leaders to move to Israel? And are we here in America paying a price for that? So being now in America and coming back here, I have met multitudes of distinguished uh, uh, Jewish leaders. And um, I think we're, we're blessed uh, with, uh, with the great plethora of uh, many generations. Uh, you know, I've met a younger generation, meaning the, the ones that people know, people know, but a younger generation of Jews who are deeply committed and excited about the future with great ideas for the future for the diaspora. So I, I think that there are leaders there, but I think, I think that it is correct to think about how many also have moved to Israel. And for me, what that means is an opportunity to create a bridge. There's an opportunity for connections. You know, one of the things that was surprising to my kids when we came back here uh, on Hanukkah, they looked at the dreidel and they saw that there was, a, there was a shin on it. And they're saying, what is the shin? They've never seen a shin on a dreidel before. Now, a dreidel has four sides. And it's Nes Kadol Haya, a great miracle happened, Nun Gimel Hay. In Israel, it says Po, which is here. It's a Nun Gimel Hay and a Pei. In America, or in the diaspora, it says Nes Kadol Haya, Sham, there's a Shin, it is over there. So they saw for the first time a dreidel, and it said a Shin. And they're like, what's a Shin? We've only seen a Pei because they only grew up in Israel. And I explained to them the difference between Po and Sham. But in this generation, there should be no difference between here and there. Well, but there are differences between the two communities and part of those. Well, let me change okay. what, I, what I, I didn't mean that there should be no differences. What I mean is that it shouldn't be seen as totally bifurcated. Mm -hmm. We need to create connections and pipelines from one to the other so that that difference you know, becomes something that we can learn from each other. As exactly. As saying that divides us. Exactly. That's what I was... Uh, that's what I'd like to get to is what is it that we can learn from each other? Uh, we always, it's always easier to give than to receive because when you give, you're in control. So I hear the American Jews that want to give to Israel, not just money. They want to give and they expect that Israel should respect the, all the denominations that they have here and all the, the way that a Judaism is practiced here. They expect Israel to take from them. And on the other side, Israel expects America to take from them. And I'm curious, if you get into a mindset of receiving rather than giving, what is it that, let's start with Israel. What is it that you think Israel can receive 
from the American Jewish community? Sure. Uh, I mean, for me, the conversation between Israel and the diaspora is a conversation between members of a family, which members of family have very different experiences and that respect one another and that can learn from one another. So, for example, the fact that we have a, uh, you know, a specific worldview living amongst not just Jews, but non-Jews and appreciating... We being in America. Yeah, we being in America. Uh, is something wholly foreign to, uh, to a country of people who were born and raised in being the majority. And we should not feel guilty about these differences because here we are, we're 2% of the population, and in Israel, they're 80% of sure. the population. To not have these differences would be unreasonable. Sure. Well, what I think is, is that we have much to, to talk to them about, to share our experiences of the world and our understanding of the world, uh, which comes from a very different perspective. Look, and they have a, the perspective of the majority. I'll give you an example. You know, you mentioned the collective. You know, in Israel, the sense of the collective is very powerful. It's very powerful. Uh, I'll tell you one story. You know, when I came here, my son, when I came to Israel for the first year and we started living there, my son was in eighth grade. And he came back one day and I asked him, how was school? And he said, we had a Katyusha rocket drill. You know, we in America, we have fire drills. In Israel, they had Katyusha rocket drills. Because they're worried, Katyusha rocket could come. What are they supposed to do? So knowing the American experience and the fire drill, I said, so what did you guys do? You filed out in a single file line, you know, very uh, um, deliberately and at a calm pace, and you all left the school? And he said, Abba, what are you talking about? I'm in eighth grade. My job was to make sure the first graders got out. And the seventh grade's job was to make sure the second graders got out. And the sixth, the third, the fifth, the fourth. And from a very early age, they learned that there's a sense of achrayut, of obligation and responsibility that one has to another. And that you need to make sure that somebody more vulnerable, you know, is safe and secure. You know, and that's like a whole educational uh, structure in Israel, which is about the collective and about the, the, the unit which comes obviously afterwards for the army and, and everything else that people give to society. Right. So there's a lot that, you know, that they can, you know, speak to us about their experience, which is very different than ours. Right. But you need empathy. You need to be able to get out of yourself and hear the point of view and put yourself in the shoes of other people. And this is what I, so I, have, I have a background in that because I used to be in the advertising business and that's what we had to do right. professionally was put ourselves in the shoes of others. And this is what I've tried to do uh, with Israel is constantly put myself in the shoes of a typical Israeli and understand why they vote the way they vote and why they do what they do and why they believe what they believe. And this helps me personally uh, uh, deepen the relationship. But if I just sat there and judged and said, well, how dare you, and how dare you, and how dare you, and you don't understand us, then it's a whole different dynamic. Sure. So I think we need to inject empathy on both sides. On both sides. I would say on both sides. I think, I think there is a lack of understanding in Israel about how passionate American Jews are about Israel, about the importance of Israel in the lives of American Jews. 
uh, for many of them and how that's at risk, you know, for the next generation. And I do think, I do agree with you, the word empathy is a good word. Uh, I think, and that's on both sides. I think you're right. And, and also, if I can suggest the word curiosity, that there's so much to learn. I, there, are, there are spiritual movements in Israel that I find fascinating. Sure. The Bambamiya festivals where they, 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 during the regular Shalosh Regalim, they have a sort of a spiritual component. There's a movement that teaches Talmud to professionals. There are so many things that are going on in Israel, Israel that, is are not, that is not happening sure. here. Sure, Israel is uh, the intellectual for, um, fertility, the ideas uh, that are bubbling. Uh, you mentioned spirituality. It's certainly uh, it's certainly something to to look. But again, I think America, you know, we have uh, from our own place and coming from a very different place, uh, have much to contribute to that uh, fertility of ideas and what uh, uh, and what the future of uh, Judaism will look. You know, there's an example somebody told me that if you look at the Talmud, you know, there's uh, there's a Talmud Yerushalmi, there's a there's a Talmud from Israel, and a Talmud Bavli. And the Babylonian, the Diaspora Talmud. I think it was Rabbi Steinzel, as somebody quoted. And we're at our strongest when those two Talmudim, when those two traditions are strong and competing with one another. Because then they can engage and it could be an instructive dialogue. And part of our, you know, perhaps our challenge today in the diaspora uh, with literacy down, and you mentioned assimilation, and you mentioned intermarriage, is that we need to strengthen our diaspora Torah. Mm. We need to strengthen what that means so that we can actually have this fertile conversation with Israel so that we can each grow, you know, and speak in a deeply rooted way that uh, um, that we can all grow from a conversation with each other. So, And one last point on Israel, because one of the seminal subjects in America today is the role of women. Um, and there was a provocative piece in JTA recently that said it's easy it's easier for orthodox women to take leadership roles in Israel than in America which kind of surprised me uh, although I do know that Rabbi Benny Lau and Rabbi Riskin have made great moves and this has been a subject of controversy in the orthodox world in America there's this movement that is called open orthodoxy that has allowed women to enter the spiritual leadership role in clergy. The Orthodox Union recently challenged that with the ruling. You're right in the middle of this controversy, Rabbi. How do you navigate this and still keep your spirit of unity? So, first of all, I, we're in the greatest era in Jewish history, certainly within 2,000 years, maybe forever, on a number of fronts unquestionably on the on the issue of women and the opportunities that they have the the opportunities uh, the religious opportunities uh, the opportunities of studying the opportunity the access to texts uh, the the professional opportunities the opportunities in their communities the opportunities in their families uh, this is an in baruch hashem you know that we've reached this uh, this period in uh, in history. It's a great time, and I often think that Jews we, you know, we focus on so much of what we're missing, and we don't think about the blessings that we have. This is a great time in Jewish history, 
in general, and certainly when it comes to when it comes to uh, to women and the opportunities that that they have, and we at Yeshiva University are all about uh, empowering our women. We have a whole school, and under we have we probably have, we have the largest higher educational uh, a facility for Jewish women, uh, you know, in our single sex education in the world. So we are all about that, and we are are, are educating and and empowering them uh, for the leadership of tomorrow, and to take advantage of all these blessings and these opportunities. I think the problem of we mentioned Jewish unity and and the divisiveness becomes when people become defined by their positions on specific matters. Okay, we are going through revolutions right now. You know, there's a social revolution. Uh, which is challenging notions of gender and and family and education. And there's a scientific and technological revolution uh, in which we're growing by leaps and bounds almost every minute, you know, in our knowledge and our ability to control the world and where we're developing and, and evolving. And these are areas that, that, that both challenge and give tradition enormous opportunities. And we are living through that period in which tradition needs to address some major changes in our rapidly evolving world. And of course, all traditions are struggling and thinking about, you know, how best is it that we're going to be able to apply our, our, our years, and in our case, our 3,000-year-old tradition, into the world of tomorrow. And that's normal, and, and it should be expected, and, and it'll take time to, to work through. The problem becomes is when we're so narrow in our definitions of people, whether you're in our camp or out of our camp, that if you take a specific position on a specific issue, that that's defined who you are, and then you're either if, with us or you're without us. You know, in many senses, it's, it's like American society, right? America was built on great ideas, okay? Life, liberty, equality. But if you look at the discourse, and, and to bring back to how we started this conversation, if we look at the discourse today, it's filled with this extremist language that, that puts people into, fr into factions. And whether you're with us or you're against us based on their positions on specific issues. I, but we in the Jewish community, we need to model for our nation the best practices, not mirror its worst instincts. I think the real challenge for orthodoxy is we're dealing in a world where it's very difficult to tell a woman that you can't do what a man does. You can't have the same position that a man has, and that's why you have conservative Judaism and reform Judaism, and they have women rabbis. So when an Orthodox woman says, I'd like to be a rabbi too, then we come face-to-face -face with the importance of tradition and mitzvah. And there are red lines that are being drawn by the Posekim and the great Allahic rulers of orthodoxy that have said, we, we embrace a greater role for women in terms of teaching Torah and so many other things, but yet we still have the red line at becoming a rabbi. Now, I personally understand that. But I just want to put out there on the table that this is a difficult challenge in today's world when equality is so taken for granted. Well, I think that the more we understand the social shifts and undercurrents 
of these specific issues, the greater we have an opportunity to think through all of the values that are at stake and the consequences that are at stake. And again, this isn't a Jewish thing. This is all the traditions. When I speak to uh, you know, my colleagues, presidents at other faith-based universities and truthfully world religious leaders, we're all thinking about these kinds of things. And when we focus too much on the specific and the specific issue, it's not just that I was saying before how divisive it is. We lose sight and we don't deal with, uh, with, with really what's going on and the undercurrents of what's going on. I wish we could get to a point, Rabbi, where we can respect red lines with love and understanding. Um, I don't really have a problem with red lines. I respect them. And I think we talked earlier about sort of empathy and I, I'm always stuck in the middle because I, have all, I always have friends on all sides. Right. And I really try to understand all sides. But at the end of the day, there's got to be some kind of point where, where love wins out. <laughs> where, you know, I, I, I respect your red line and I love you anyways. We can agree to disagree. There's got to be some way of disagreeing with love, some way of disagreeing with unity. Maybe going back to the point you made on family. It's got to be some way that we can sort of manage that rather than, you know, the old thing of breaking away and so forth. So I think there are two points. I think, first of all, it's certainly true when it comes to thinking about, if you're talking about the Jewish people, thinking about it as a family. And families, you don't need to agree with each person on every issue that they, uh, that they hold. They believe in order to, st but you still remain attached, and not just attached, but you have feelings of love. And I do believe that, that the sense that to forward the notion, not just of peoplehood, which is a phrase that's used, but of Jewish family, that we're tied together as a family with a shared fate and shared destiny, with shared roots, is, uh, is a very powerful notion that's important. In this case, what I'm trying to also add is that if we don't, think about this more substantively rather than the, the specifics, then we're not even going to be able to handle the specifics as well. Mm. Meaning we won't be able to forge the kind of thought partners that we can otherwise because mm -hmm. we're so narrowly focused on, mm -hmm. on this one example mm -hmm. and drawing what you call drawing red lines. Right. There's much greater currents here. And, uh, and I think it's enormously valuable to work on what we have in common to work from that to to think through on the values and ideational level um and that will better position us actually to deal with the specifics uh, uh, in the end as well well one last question yeah. uh, if you look five years down the road what's your definition of success in your position that is an excellent question david that is an excellent question i was just with another a professional from a major organization who's involved in Jewish education. I asked him that very question. Um, how would, how is the metrics of success? You know, if we're trying to raise Jewish leaders, if we're trying to uh, inspire all of our students uh, in our population, if we're trying to inspire our broader global community to take leadership and to live lives, value Jewish value-filled lives, 
which inspire us to impact not just the Jewish community, but the broader society. How do we gauge success? Because for us, success isn't just about how many rabbis or teachers or educators or people involved in the Jewish professionals in the Jewish community. We do all that, right? We have perhaps the largest number that we graduate of rabbis and teachers and Jewish professionals. Okay, but we believe that every person is a leader if they come into it in the right intentions, if there's a consciousness in their actions, if they're out in the world thinking that we're in finance because we're trying to grow society's wealth and trying to improve the world around us. So there's a leadership there. If you're trying to sanctify the name of God by your actions, when you're in the workplace or outside in the world, so there's leadership there. So I just literally, just two days ago, I just asked how... What's the metrics of success? We're still working on that. <laughs> okay, good, good. Well, Rabbi, thank you very much for it's joining us. It's been a pleasure. Us. Wonderful to be here, David. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, shabbat shalom.